بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم لیڈیز اینڈ جینٹلمین السلام علیکم اینڈ ویلکم ٹو ایپیزوڈ ٹین آف دا پاکستان جیو اسٹریٹجک ریویو پوڈ کاسٹ ود یور ہوسٹ زکی خالد دا فرسٹ ٹاپک آئی بی اسپیکنگ آن از اور رادر شیڈنگ لائٹ آن از این انٹرسٹنگ امپیکٹ سیریز پیپر فار بروکنگز انڈیا دی انڈین آف شوٹ آف بروکنگز انسٹیٹیوشن آف دی یو ایس ٹائٹلڈ انڈیاز فارن افیئر اسٹریٹجی Uh, it has been authored by uh, Shiv Shankar Menon. Uh, Mr. Menon is a former National Security Advisor of the Government of India and he is also currently uh, leading uh, the Center for Indo-Chinese Studies in New Delhi. Uh, he holds extensive experience uh, during the rule of uh, former Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. In fact, um, If you've been reading um, some of my writings, I mentioned the role which uh, Mr. Menon had in boosting those offensive cyber capabilities uh, through a whole-of-state approach by the Indian security establishment. So the credit for some of the uh, state-sponsored cyber attacks uh, post the Mumbai attacks uh, goes to Mr. Menon. Uh, keeping these things apart, um i uh, you if you have not read his uh, book choices i highly recommend you do uh, i have a copy of it uh, in my home it's a wonderful uh, read and it gives you considerable insight into the workings behind the indian uh, national security establishment and mr to mr menon's credit he is known as an experienced china hand in uh, india so whenever there is an issue involving foreign policy or security uh some sort of a tussle with china then he is the go to person for the indian establishment so whatever he says and the views which he proffers are not only considered important from the security perspective but also the foreign policy perspective and uh, this paper of his uh is concise it does not go into extensive details it is uh not filled with the usual rhetoric we see and it is very succinct in the fact that it tries to give a roundup of what are the short term and uh, long term dynamics which drive india's foreign policy and thereafter he proposes a strategy which in his view could help india navigate through this maze uh, so some of the important takeaways um, which i um, took out from his paper are as follows now what i am going to state henceforth are uh, extracts from the paper if there are any comments of mine to be added i'll mention that sp- uh, distinctly so one of the points which mr menon writes is that the sources of instability are in india's immediate vicinity in fragile and extremist ridden west asia which is obviously pakistan afghanistan iran etc In East Asia, where a rising China is increasingly assertive in the pursuit of its expanding definition of its interests. Now, this is obviously um, a personal comment. This is uh, his reference to China's growing assertiveness in the Pacific and the South China Sea in particular. And he says that in Pakistan and its internal demons. Uh, personal comment. This would obviously imply that he is referring to Uh, what they call the jihadist network which is allegedly groomed by the pakistani establishment uh, I, i personally do not see any other connotation of the word demons 
and he says that um, he rather assesses that no alliance will solve these to India's satisfaction. The United States has its own and different stakes in China, Pakistan and West Asia. So what we can glean, this is a personal uh, comment, what we can glean from this particular point is that Mr. Menon suggests India should not consider any sort of an alliance, whether it is political alliance or security alliance with the US because it has totally different and its, uh, its own vested dealings with uh, these three strategic actors china pakistan and west asia so they've basically combined west uh, he has basically combined the west asia into a whole which includes uh, the middle east and uh, afghanistan iran and distinctly mentioned china and pakistan i'm assuming this is in the order of uh, high threats because china is mentioned first then pakistan and then west asia and these are obviously the top three strategic concerns for india's security establishment uh, so this is interesting that he says that uh, he is uh, one of those who believes that India should not consider any sort of alliance with the US. Why? Um, he has throughout the paper mentioned uh, or reinforced the concept of what the Indians call strategic autonomy. And he is a very uh, assertive uh, advocate of this concept. Uh, more on that later. So in the next, in another uh, one of the other extracts is that, I quote, no other country shares India's precise set of interests for the simple reason that no other country shares India's history, geography, size, culture and identity. India's domestic condition, all of which determine what it seeks from the international system. What it seeks is an external environment that supports the transformation of India, which enables it to build a modern, prosperous and secure country, eliminating poverty, illiteracy, disease and the other curses of underdevelopment from the lives of India's people. That is India's core interest." Unquote. So this is um, um, when he talks about the external environment which is conducive for India to transform itself internally. Uh, this is a discrete uh, confirmation of the fact that which Pakistan's uh, uh, national security uh, establishment has already I believe taken stock of that uh, that external environment can only be guaranteed by um, a regional or extra regional actor which has the means to uh, make favorable situations now when we talk about India you cannot expect Russia to uh, create a favorable environment in the Indian Ocean and the Western Pacific that is beyond Russia's um, influence. China is obviously in confront, uh, not uh, is an adversary according to India. So this naturally and very obviously points toward the US. So the US is an enabler, a, an external enabler, but not to be considered an ally. This is what you can glean from Mr. Menon's assertion. So he continues, I quote, If India is to enjoy peace at home to develop, it will need to consolidate its periphery and ensure that it cannot be used against its interests. Pakistan and the cross-border terrorism it sponsors could derail India's quest only if India allows them to. Pakistan is a strategic distraction. Sadly, though India's responses to terrorism have improved, terrorism itself has enjoyed a global resurgence. 
ان ویسٹ ایشیا پاکستان افغانستان اینڈ نارتھ افریقہ ان افغانستان پاکستان از گاٹ دی یونائٹیڈ اسٹیٹس رشیا اینڈ چائنا ٹو بائی اینڈ ٹو دی آئیڈیا دیٹ دا طالبان شوڈ بی اکاموڈیٹڈ ان دی افغان گورنمنٹ اینڈ دیٹ پاکستان کین ڈلیور دیٹ آؤٹ کم انکوٹ دس از آبویسلی آئی وڈنٹ کال اٹ ریٹرک دس از اے ویری نیوٹرل انالیسس and he actually uh, acknowledges that pakistan has used its influence to which in his view bring together uh, three competing distinct strategic actors russia and china and one extra regional actor which is us to by uh, support taliban's incorporation into the future afghan uh, national government and this is obviously also an admission of defeat for the uh, indian securities narrative um, which i personally find to be a very uh, uh, it's an argument which has been repeatedly stressed thoroughly enough and um, the uh, existing uh, angst which you can see in the afghan government itself of president ghani refusing to uh, go ahead in giving uh, exceeding space to the taliban because he is consistently trying to uh, pin the blame for the horrific tragedy um, in dastebarchi to uh, taliban whereas uh, isis daesh openly uh, claimed responsibilities so uh, this is the fact that um, when it comes to um, new delhi and the kabul administration uh, it is a clear confirmation of the fact that pakistan's Uh, idea to ensure that there is a uh, whole of society and uh, not ethnically uh, uh, disjointed afghan government which includes elements of uh, taliban the national unity government tajiks hazaras etc etc and uh, this um, facilitation of the peace process by pakistan which was Uh, at the us's uh, request uh, is something which you can say that maybe the us bought into a so called uh, uh, bad idea but then you have russia and china also which are very important regional actors and they are the two most important uh, states which govern the entire process of the shanghai cooperation organization which by the way is a very very influential regional forum so if Uh, an extra regional force like the us and two uh, influential heads of the sco they uh, in uh, mainan's words uh, quote bought into the idea unquote of uh, pakistan uh, incorporating taliban into the afghan process uh, should be seen uh, in positive light and it should not be construed as an effort of pakistan to try to gain so called strategic depth in afghanistan because frankly Uh, when it comes to counter terrorism and counter insurgency pakistan has been very clear uh, in trying to distinguish between um, groups demanding legitimate rights and terrorist elements with any and all sort of militant denominations uh, and illegal armed struggles so whether it is afghan taliban or the pakistani taliban or daesh or um, lashkar e taiba etc etc whatever it is pakistan has been consistently clear that um, and when it comes to afghanistan it is an undeniable fact you may call it real politic or whatever that the afghan taliban do have an important stake and they do uh, enjoy uh, a lot of uh, public support when it comes to uh, 
power sharing in the future of Afghan government. They have done so in the past and Pakistan knows very well and it has reminded these three important strategic actors, US, China and Russia, that uh, as former important stakeholders, they cannot be excluded from this process. So it is only logic going forward. It is not uh, an absurd concept that has been proposed out of the blue or that has been forcefully injected into the Afghan peace process debate. Coming to the other point, he says that, I quote, Pakistan is not a strategic threat to India unless India hands it victory by making it possible for Pakistan to exploit religious fissures in India's society. India has done best in the years when Pakistan was most active making trouble in Punjab, Jammu and Kashmir and elsewhere. India's Pakistan problem now is in large part a China problem because it is China that enhances Pakistan's capabilities. Keeping it one step behind India at each stage of its nuclear progress, building up its defenses and committing to its long-term future in the China-Pakistan economic corridor." Unquote. So, there are two important takeaways from this particular extract. One is the fact that um, Mr. Menon believes uh, India can suffer strategic defeat. Now, please note the fact that um, he joins the strategic threat from Pakistan directly to religious fissures within India. You can just, if you can read between the lines, this is actually an acknowledgement of the fact that India's internal religious fissures problem, which involves mostly the uh, radicalized uh, Hindu elements of the Hindutva Brigade trying to suppress uh, the minority Muslims and some Christian elements including Delites. Uh, this is something uh, which has become a sort of according to what you can understand Mr. Menon is trying to say a strategic exploitative vulnerability for India. And we can obviously uh, understand this situation from the fact that uh, well enough uh, there have been several op-eds in uh, uh, Western and uh, newspapers and also reports by religious freedom groups and observers that India's uh, religious uh, freedom, uh, the space which currently exists is being diminished because of the uh, policies of the Narendra Modi government and also uh, because of uh, the machinations of Hindutva elements which are trying to saffronize the India's, uh, the Indian government's uh, na a national apparatus, whether it is politics, it is commerce, it is defense, it is foreign affairs. And uh, in the overall context, um, Mr. Menon believes, again reading between the lines, that if India allows this um, process of saffronization to continue, he hasn't mentioned it in that sense, but you can obviously imply this then uh, this is something which Pakistan could use to uh, suppress India's uh, aspirations to rise. Then we also have this important po uh, point uh, takeaway from uh, Mr. Menon's um, uh, observation uh, or rather assertion that CPEC is also a problem for India because um, now China and Pakistan are directly hyphenated um, into the Indian security matrix because um, while China has 
its distinct threat uh, implications for india and pakistan also but when it comes to cpec it becomes a joint threat for india and this is a very valid point it is a very logical point and um, apart from uh, routine military maneuvers or uh, other diplomatic uh, uh, affairs uh, this is this geoeconomic project cpec is one which is seen as a direct joint or two front threat for india's interests in its periphery which is obviously uh, covering the whole of south asia primarily and well beyond into west asia and likewise into the indian ocean so this is a very uh, lucid summary of how cpec is viewed as a hyphenated china pakistan joint threat to india so in this regard when india tries to meddle with cpec or there is any progress in cpec it is viewed not just as an onslaught by from pakistan but also from china as well coming to another important point i quote the more india rises the more it must expect chinese opposition and it will have to also work with other powers to ensure that its interests are protected in the neighborhood the region and the world unquote uh, th that other power is obviously the us uh, i think it goes without saying quote the balance will keep shifting between cooperation and competition with china both of which characterize that relationship the important thing is the need to rapidly accumulate usable and effective power even while the macro balance will take time to right itself unquote so cooperation and competition a very pragmatic analysis um you cannot uh, um you cannot um, it is very reasonable that india does not try to uh, aim for outright cooperation because as we have seen in the recent incidents involving the um border standoff with the china in the northeast across arunachal pradesh and uh, some uh, other, other issues which involve for example uh, india's opposition to building the diamir bhasha dam and uh, trying to consolidate um, uh, constitutional uh, rights in gilgit baltistan so uh, this is something that um, and there will be um, confrontations uh, and competition with china in these arenas but there is also there are also avenues for cooperation when it comes to economy and culture etc etc so um, this love hate relationship will continue and um uh, as an experienced uh, china hand mr menon's uh, comments carry significant weight weight now coming to another important takeaway which from his talk mr menon says i quote india must work with other powers to ensure that its region stays multipolar and that china behaves responsibly it is hard to sustain a political military relationship with partners if there are constant differences with them in india's economic relations in bilateral and multilateral negotiations on trade climate change and other issues india cannot have an activist political and defense outreach if its economic and trade policy is inward looking and both are totally disconnected from each other unquote and again two important takeaways from this particular point the first is um the reiteration that india needs an external enabler to have a multipolar environment in the region you see this is what uh, is beyond um, 
my understanding as a Pakistani observer of uh, uh, regional and geostrategic affairs, I fail to understand that while India is trying to assert itself, it does not want to become an ally or a part uh, of uh, any regional or extra regional country, but it wants to use the influence and the resources available with these other actors or to put it in you can say uh, metaphorical terms it wants to um, stand on uh, others shoulders to provide a conducive environment if that if that is the sort of base which India wants to rely on then how can India legitimately try to position itself as a so-called regional power or a hub of regional um, uh, or affairs because um, you need uh, credibility for that when it comes to uh, institutions and uh, governance and uh, regional maneuverings and uh, if India wants to let others handle that aspect of it and later on try to benefit from the exploits so to speak then that doesn't make sense. This is not how um, countries which try to aspire for great power go about. This is a, uh, this is quite ridiculous actually. And it's very clear that um, Mr. Menon is in the, uh, implying that India needs the US to try to uh, ensure multipolarity in the region. What else could be there? Because um, Russia and China are viewed together as revisionist powers by the US establishment. So you can't say that uh, Russia will try, it, you, India will rely on Russia to ensure multipolarity with China. That's not going to be the case. The strategic interests of Russia and China um, till the lo um, long term uh, future in the region are going to be intertwined and going to converge on a lot of points including uh, in the economic and security spheres. So that is one aspect of the polarity. The other divergent polarity is obviously the US and Europe. And Europe, we can't consider it into the equation here. It is obviously the US. And now the other takeaway from this point is that he has very rightly, Mr. Menon has very rightly analyzed that while uh, India's political and defense outreach is very assertive and it is uh, uh, it reiterates itself in various aggressive forms now and then, um, for posturing its economic and trade policy is inward looking he said which is obviously an indication of uh, protectionism and this is the sort of paradox which you see in the US also the Trump establishment since it has come to power the Trump administration uh, they're trying to continue about their geopolitical maneuverings in their own region and beyond but when it comes to trade and economic affairs they're inward looking they're very protectionist so these things cannot go hand in hand. Well, the US is also facing similar problems and Mr. Menon says that this is something which India should also be mindful of because this is exactly the sort of approach, uh, dichotomous approach which is uh, creating uh, a situation in which you take one step forward and one step backward. So you're basically in the same spot. Uh, the next important point is, I quote, the Indo-Pacific is not the answer to India's continental security issues of which there are many and which are not shared by any of the other members of the Quad. A free and open Indo-Pacific is a noble goal, but it will not be achieved so long as the different geographies, security issues and solutions in the Indian Ocean, the seas near China and the Western Pacific are not recognized. The Western Pacific is dominated by the US Navy. The seas near China are being converted into a Chinese lake and are the only maritime theater where China can hope for a favorable balance of power in the near term. 
These are enclosed seas and have therefore been battle spaces in history, since powers can hope to control them and what flows through them. The Indian Ocean, on the other hand, has an open geography and has therefore always been a trading highway rather than a battle space. The security solutions in architecture for each of these bodies of water has therefore to be different and designed specifically, taking into account the conditions of that sea." Unquote. This, I believe, is a very, very unique and marked position away from the growing discourse over the past uh, five years or so from the Indian security establishment and various commentators, whether they are retired diplomats or uh, military veterans or even research scholars, when they try to propose that India should form part of the Quad and uh, believe in the concept of the so-called Indo-Pacific, which is the merger of the Indian and Pacific Oceans as a combined geostrategic battle space. Interestingly, Mr. Menon is an advocate to the contrary and he suggests that um, very rightly, um, you should actually read this paper to understand where he's coming from on this. I must admire the point which, which he raises over here that the Indian Ocean has its own distinct historical maritime makeup, uh, maritime uh, security makeup, uh, and also in the economic realm, whereas uh, the dynamics are entirely different in the Pacific. You cannot intertwine them or you cannot correlate them just um, to en ensure what he earlier said was multipolarity in the region. These are distinct uh, oceans. They have their own seas. They have their own um, stability uh, dynamics. And um, there are different actors with varying levels of influence. And he very rightly mentions that the US Navy is dominant in the Western Pacific. Whereas if you look in the Indian Ocean, um, it is mostly a free for all, but you can see some sort of assertiveness by the Indian Navy. And then there are uh, countries from the Gulf, you have East African nations, you have France, uh, importantly, you have the UK. So you can't correlate them just to seek short or uh, midterm benefits. In the long term, obviously, um, I completely agree that uh, the Indo-Pacific will not answer India's continental security issues. But this is something which a majority of India's um, scholarly politics fails to understand because uh, they um, consider outright reliance on the American uh, security architecture in the Pacific for their own gains in the Indian Ocean, whereas um, if you have happened to uh, read some of my uh, perspective papers for CSCR, I wrote about um, um, Indo-US cooperation and militarization in the Western Indian Ocean and um, Pakistan needs to be to shred its uh, uh, land secure centric security calculus. I presented a roundup of why um, this particular uh, region, uh, that is the Indian Ocean region's dynamics are very complex and you cannot uh, try it. India is basically ludicrously trying to believe that it can um, try to use, exploit uh, the Pacific potential of the US uh, in the Indian Ocean for its own gains. This is not going to work and uh, not only is the fact that uh, beyond the traditional uh, security sense. When it comes to economic terms also, when India wishes to 
um, ensure a free and open uh, uh, movement of uh, container traffic from the South China Sea, from which a vast majority of India's uh, trade uh, uh, supplies pass through, then it will not, uh, it cannot uh, follow this Indo-Pacific concept because within that region you have ASEAN and you have those member states such as Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Vietnam, etc., which do not want to um, be in a, in a situation where they'll have to be with China and against US or with US and against China. They don't want to put themselves in a cash 22 situation. They just want to uh, maintain their autonomous status in the um, uh, in Southeast and, and East Asia, which, in, which would obviously include Japan. So this Indo-Pacific concept is not realistic if India wants to uh, rise as Mr. Menon puts it. This is a very interesting observation and in my understanding and in my personal belief, this is the most important takeaway uh, when we talk about uh, geostrategy from this paper. And this is something which um, will be debated by many uh, analysts within India, but uh, coming from a former NSA, this merits considerable attention. Coming to the next takeaway and the last takeaway from this paper, Mr. Menon says that the most important improvement that India needs to make concerns its national security structures and their work introducing flexibility into India's thinking and India's structures for change is the only certainty in life." Unquote. Um, uh, the only thing I can um, try to infer from this remark is that, or rather deduce from this remark is that uh, Mr. Menon is trying to uh, suggest that India needs to uh, calm down its uh, uh, aggressive national security centric posturing in the neighborhood and it needs to uh, review the approach it has maintained um, in its neighborhood uh, which has so far been hegemonic uh, to say the least. One would also assume that this is also a jibe at um, the incumbent NSA Mr. Ajit Doval who has um, transformed the national security structures of India into a um, into a Goliath that is getting beyond its control and is seen to be more uh, aggressive as compared to rational um, which is obviously creating problems except for, uh, Pakistan with China also which uh, is something which is not conducive for uh, on and off cooperation on certain mutual interests in the uh, economic and culture realms. So the next topic is um, Turkey's regional assertiveness. I was reading this very interesting article by Dr. Chan Kasapolu, director of the defense and security program at the Istanbul based think tank EDAM. Uh, he, wrote, he wrote for the Jamestown terrorism monitor titled Turkey's growing military expeditionary posture. So Mr. Uh, Dr. Kasapolu states that I quote a glance at the Turkish armed forces recent combat record demonstrates that Turkey's defense policy now extends well beyond its borders. Drones loitering in the Syrian airspace Navy frigates along the Libyan coast, Turkish military advisors in Tripoli alongside government of national accord formations 
mountain commando units operating in northern Iraq and high-ranking Turkish officers in Qatar and Somalia are all pretty common to see now. Overall, the Turkish military is fast becoming an expeditionary actor in league with Ankara's geopolitical worldview. Unquote. He adds further that, I quote, Turkey now shows political military interest in a broader axis and the armed forces rely on a stronger defense industry. Besides, ultra-secularist military elite of the 90s has been replaced by conservative AK party governments. Consequently, for example, the Turkish-Israeli military cooperation gave way to the Turkey-Qatar Defense Partnership. Yet, at the end of the day, the Turkish statecraft's active military manifestation is long-lasting. Of course, there arise risks from such an aspirant strategy." Unquote. So, he also further says, I quote, Forward bases offer lucrative targets to hostile intentions. Now, he's referring to Turkish forward bases in uh, North Africa and the Middle East. So these forward bases, the Turkish form, uh, forward bases, in Mr. Uh, Dr. Kasapolu's views, offer lucrative targets to hostile intentions and expeditionary military posture means more burden on defense economics and there is always the risk of getting overstretched in endless hybrid and proxy wars among many other challenges. Nevertheless, today Ankara's military policies as to forward bases is not a transactional one, rather its military activism is there to stay." Unquote. And this is, um, if you've heard um, my previous podcast in which I also discussed this Turkish scholar elaborating on Turkey's Mavi Vatan or Blue Water Doctrine, uh, which is basically uh, an encapsulation of Turkey's aspirations to assume dominance in the of the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, well into um, the Red Sea and near the Gulf of Aden. So this is a, a strategic area which is right um, between Europe and Asia, or if I may put it, it is basically uh, transoceanic. Also, it um, combines the Atlantic with the Indian Ocean region and positions Turkey centrally as a pivot to decide uh, dynamics in the Eurasian landmass, whether it is for Russia, China, the US, NATO, uh, the GCC, uh, Turkey is going its own route and is trying to position itself centrally and one of the ways it's doing that is through uh, force projection by establishing forward operating bases over the past couple of years in Africa, in the Middle East, and uh, providing medical uh, military, engaging in military medical diplomacy and uh, general soft uh, soft power attempts to uh, boost uh, support in the Middle East and North Africa. And we can see one of its uh, eastern nodes extending till Qatar which is obviously in the U.S. Central Command area of operations and Qatar is obviously the base for U.S. Central Command. So this um, gives Qatar an edge and uh, this uh, uh, while at the same time Turkey is trying to assert control of um, North Africa for um, resources gains and uh, while ensuring that it has created a, a deterrent uh, in southern Europe in the waters of the Mediterranean so that Greece, Cyprus, Israel and um, 
of these other countries can be deterred from trying to uh, curb Ankara's ambitions for mineral exploration in the eastern Mediterranean so it's not uh, it's mostly uh, energy and uh, energy related geopolitics but also the fact uh, that uh, these are long-term geostrategic aspirations uh, through which Turkey is trying to assert its unique and distinct standing in the comity of nations uh, this is actually um, what most commentators within um, Israel security establishment and elsewhere have tried to describe it as a sort of uh, these Arab critics of uh, Turkey have tried to describe it as a so-called resurgence of the Turkish Caliphate or the Ottomans um, so I wouldn't go into that debate that's beyond my understanding and beyond me to try to go get into that it's uh, I, I would not prefer to comment on it I have no position on it I the only thing I can say is that as far as uh, hard power is concerned and soft power is concerned Turkey is working both ways simultaneously in parallel with full force its approach has been more development oriented and uh, which is good as compared to Arab regimes which have tried to uh, employ the other uh, usual tactic of trying to prop up merc uh, uh, mercenaries to secure their uh, energy interests uh, as we saw earlier in the so-called uh, uh, efforts to top uh, in the efforts to topple um, Gaddafi etc so this is something which uh, differentiates Turkey from the others and uh, uh, when we read this uh, interesting commentary by Dr. Kasapolu he very rightly mentions that this is something which uh, um, adds to Turkey's ambitions of trying to secure the eastern Mediterranean for security and energy gains we can obviously expect uh, in my earlier podcast I mentioned that the Israeli military intelligence assessed in its annual review that uh, Turkey is going to be a strategic threat for Israel this is obviously because of the fact that uh, Israel has its own uh, energy interests in the Mediterranean which are under threat of uh, Turkey's dominance so uh, the fact that um, the AK party is here and trying to promote this policy guiding the overall policy of the Turkish armed forces is something which needs to be uh, carefully assessed by Pakistan's own national security establishment because uh, in the coming future we and there might be opportunities for Pakistan to align itself more closely with a rather um, neutral and uh, soft regional um, alliance led by Turkey instead of uh, one which incurs geo-sectarian implications led by Saudi Arabia or uh, the UAE etc so uh, this is something which Pakistan needs to carefully monitor and take stock of from time to time and within this context um, I would also like to add a recent news uh, which I believe merits uh, attention Turkish officials expressed outrage when the UAE attempted to secure rights to gas fields in the eastern Mediterranean earlier this week um, the UAE France Greece Cyprus and Egypt together accused Turkey of violating Cypriot waters i.e. the waters of Cyprus and Greek airspace in response the Turkish Foreign Minister Mawlud Cavusoglu said that Abu Dhabi that is the headquarters of the UAE Supreme Command is I quote destabilizing the region unquote and I quote bringing chaos unquote Mr. Cavusoglu believes that uh, the UAE is I quote 
unsettling Libya and destroying Yemen. Unquote. So uh, this is a natural response to continued provocation of what Turkey perceives is uh, a growing uh, Arab plus uh, European meddling into Turkey's uh, perceived legitimate interests in the Mediterranean. Uh, this would continue to define security dynamics in the Middle East and um, in the no uh, North African region for the times to come and uh, obviously such uh, machinations would uh, incur liabilities for Pakistan's allies in the Gulf Cooperation Council so indirectly this would obviously impact Pakistan's own dynamics as well Pakistan maintains excellent uh, brotherly relations with both Turkey and Saudi Arabia uh, and uh, when it comes to the UAE as well Pakistan has a a very stated position of being a long-time ally of the UAE as well as Turkey so uh, any sort of continued uh, distrust between these two important uh, brotherly countries of Pakistan uh, would need to be handled carefully not as much to the extent of vis-a-vis -vis Yemen um, but the fact that um, UAE's entire uh, extraterritorial or expeditionary ambitions are directly being challenged by Turkey both in the Middle East and in the Mediterranean this is going to uh, cause problems for Pakistan from the foreign policy angle to the point where uh, Pakistan ultimately in the midterm future according to my understanding will have to um, take some sort of a position on whether it is supporting Turkey staying neutral or it is going to reject Turkey now obviously um, for now the trend suggests that Pakistan is most likely going to uh, discreetly support Turkey in its ambitions uh, the Pakistani um, national security establishment and foreign policy establishment is heavily pro-Turkey and Turkey was one of the very few countries apart from Malaysia uh, which uh, echoed its aspirations uh, to con uh, its uh, requests to condemn um, Indian uh, provocations in occupied Jammu and Kashmir and elsewhere uh, so uh, this is something uh, from the geostrategic angle which Pakistan will need to be uh, taking careful stock of these developments need to be monitored and uh, not just um, the UAE trying to take on Turkey but Egypt also now interestingly India has its own spat with Turkey since the uh, revocation of article 370 when Turkey took sides with Pakistan India has been trying to warm up to Egypt recently you can find a lot of news about the Indian ambassador to Egypt trying to cozy relations with Egypt and also um, trying to warm relations with the GCC countries so in this scenario Pakistan obviously is left with little choices except to support the Turkish bloc in the region but that is not um, a zero-sum um, uh, dynamic which has appeared all of a sudden and this is not going to be a, do, do, uh, a with us or against a situation for Pakistan not at all not now not on in the long-term future but when we talk about uh, CPEC and the overall Belt and Road Initiative Pakistan will have to look into whether or not uh, the, this growing assertiveness by Ankara is it going to complement and 
uh, assure China of providing a secure and reasonable um, connectivity for Beijing to Europe or will uh, Turkey in the future um, because of its um, growing independent and uh, standalone status uh, become a buffer which would obviously complicate the BRI's own pr um, project and thereby causing problems for Pakistan as well. So I personally don't see that um, but what I do see is that as far as the BRI, BRI is concerned, um, China has its own routes going through um, Eurasia into Europe and the Netherlands and France. But Turkey is uh, an important Eurasian player which cannot be missed and it must not be missed. And um, not just because of its contributions in uh, security and economy but also because acting as a stabilizing factor within the Muslim world. Specifically for Pakistan which is caught in a geo-sectarian fiasco between the Shia camp and the Sunni camp etc etc so uh, here Turkey acts as a very neutral stabilizer in this whole scenario so if uh, Pakistan must follow these uh, developments involving Turkey and the GCC uh, whether it is in the eastern Mediterranean or not so, so this Turkish regional assertiveness is something which uh, directly impacts Pakistan's uh, regional uh, strategic interests now and into the long term coming to the next topic which is indo-russian stance during the sino-us tussle during a joint webinar with the indian think tank observer research foundation fyodor lukyanov research director of the valdai club of russia stated that russia and india should avoid involvement in the growing sino-us standoff i quote by all means Unquote. He suggested that both Russia and India should consider leading the group of countries who want nothing to do with the confrontation going on between America and China. He preferred that, I quote, one of the tasks of Russia's foreign policy in the foreseeable future will be to accurately build a system of counterbalances that would, on the one hand, prevent us from being involved in this confrontation, that is the Sino-US confrontation and on the other hand enable us to use the fact that there are some other countries that have absolutely no intention to, to, to participate in it." Unquote. So this is obviously uh, Russia does not want to um, have an, anything to do uh, with uh, the Sino-US standoff. This is mostly because of um, continued political rhetoric by Washington and Beijing accusing each other of uh, uh, distributing the COVID uh, virus uh, which has become uh, absurd to say the least. Uh, meanwhile on the same occasion Vasily Kashin a senior research fellow of the Russian Academy of Sciences Institute of the Far East suggested that Russia and India should increase joint work in security, energy and economic relations to I quote enhance their strategic autonomy amid global instability unquote. So while uh, we have seen a, a certain camp of scholars uh, from within the Russian diplomatic establishment declaring 2020 is the defining moment for uh, Chinese uh, Sino-Russian resurgence and uh, strategic convergence uh, against a hegemonic a perceived hegemonic West which they call the collective West uh, th this particular group of scholars from the Wild Eye Club, which is an important uh, think tank of Russia, a discussion club, it believe they believe that um, 
India is a reliable partner to ensure strategic autonomy during this uh, period of global instability. This is very important, and uh, but obviously um, one doesn't see uh, India buying into this particular argument because Russia, apart from these um, diplomatic maneuvers, is not able to provide, which I earlier discussed, uh, Mr. Menon's. Uh, policy of trying to create an external favorable environment for India to transform itself. So Russia is beyond that. It is off the table for New Delhi's current establishment and that is a space which is exclusively occupied by the US for now. Lastly, uh, coming to the last topic which is the spike in Iranian military and cyber activities during COVID-19. So I came across this very interesting report uh, by US-based data analytics firm Babel Street, B-A-B-E-L, Babel Street. Um, it, the Babel Street is basically a data analytics firm. They rely on open source intelligence and commercial telemetry data. And uh, just for uh, or, um, the general listeners, telemetry basically is when you extract um, information and data from certain um, devices which are placed in inaccessible areas so that is called telemetry this thing could um, what they've done is uh, Babel Street has uh, an ex uh, a staff and the expertise through which they can collect and analyze uh, data which includes open source data cyber uh, space data uh, telemetry data and other social media uh, communications uh, they monitor them, they classify them, they analyze them and they process them into formats which give them a general perception of what is going on, the trajectories in which the certain uh, civil and military uh, orientations of uh, certain countries are taking place. Now they offer these services to clients and they offer a, a host of other services as well. I am not going to do into the details, you can check them out. Um, I was introduced to this uh, company only recently because of their report which is titled Iran military seeks to mitigate COVID-19 threat to readiness. I found this to be very interesting. I found their approach to be very interesting but I must say that um, I would like to see what sort of uh, what are the sources from which they are gathering their data, their uh, data collection methodology uh, and uh, the framework which they use to uh, base their analysis on. Uh, the report is authored by McDaniel Wicker who is Vice President for Business Development at Babel Street and a former US Air Force Intelligence Officer. He is also an Asian Security Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars. So uh, what they've done is they've uh, gathered that data and they tried to summarize what they believe are the projections, uh, the uh, analy analysis of what is going on in Iran during COVID and what are the likely trends to be. So. According to the report, the analysis of commercial telemetry data at Tehran's Grand Bazaar showed a steep drop in mobile devices down by 70 to 80% in March and April, indicating a high level of restriction for social movement. This obviously confirms the fact that Iran has been taking steps apparently to try to control uh, uh, this uh, rapid spread of uh, COVID in their country um, because of uh, lack of observing so, uh, distance, social distancing protocols. But this is the civilian aspect. Uh, some of the other takeaways are to better understand the operational status of Iran's forces, Babel Street conducted a year-on-year -year comparison of four-week periods at multiple military facilities 
in Bushehr and Bandar Abbas. So they've basically uh, gathered geo-targeted data and uh, try to assess that based on military facilities and assess whether or not military activity and movement has been increasing or decreasing. And it's uh, the report states that commercial telemetry data from these sites, that is Bushehr and Bandar Abbas, indicates the military was conscious of the opposing needs to both promote safety within the military while also maintaining a sufficient operational tempo to ensure national security objectives. March and April activity levels at these military facilities were between 30 to 50 percent of the same period in 2019. But unlike the example from Tehran Grand Bazaar, activity never appears to have fallen below 25 percent of 2019 levels, even during peak COVID countermeasures from 20 March to 17 April. These numbers strongly suggest national security leadership's willingness to assume more risk to forces in order to maintain war-fighting capabilities. Other indications point to Iran continuing to rely on its traditional asymmetric strengths such as online cyber operations and the use of proxies to maintain regional influence during this period of crisis. I find this, this line is rhetorical, uh, I'm sorry to say. Now the next point this they make is that accounts linked to the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard score, continue to post throughout the height of the virus outbreak, social media accounts, and Iranian-backed Houthi operations have continued unabated in war on Yemen. And, and their last takeaway is that Iranian leadership likely views web-based information campaigns and proxy wars as effective levers of power that can be used safely in a time of social distancing. Babel Street has also observed an increase in IRGC-linked web traffic connected to specific US and allied targets or aimed at inciting violence. So basically, um, there is nothing much to take away from the intelligence standpoint. Uh, I find this uh, uh, more of a uh, PR publicity report than actual uh, report of substantive value. But nevertheless, um, this process of trying to uh, fuse open source intelligence and social media intelligence with telemetry data and while at the same time trying to uh, translate and assess these developments uh, into uh, uh, security centric vantage point uh, it does offer you some very interesting uh, observations never uh, one has uh, I wouldn't say that this is unusual that uh, Iran has relied tries to view uh, the cyber and the social media campaigns as more reliable and less risky as compared to uh, direct military activities. This has been going on for a long time now. We all know that uh, ever since that Stuxnet phenomenon many many years ago, uh, Iran uh, has sufficiently boosted its uh, cyber operational capabilities and uh, they've recently launched their uh, uh, military satellite Noor which obviously gives them a certain edge when it comes to imagery intelligence as well. So uh, these are not uh, what you would call uh, the hard power capabilities which Iran uh, uh, threatens to employ now and then and uh, the fact that uh, but this point is very substantive which they make about um, uh, the military facilities in Bandar Abbas in Bushehr where the levels uh, were still up uh, during the peak Covid period obviously 
and i would i would personally say that this is this could not be just iran this could be any other country if you would uh, analyze them because you can't expect a national security uh, leadership of a country uh, at critical sites to just uh, simply go into uh, uh, suspension mode or go into a pause you can, uh, or just go dormant for a while Th that's not that doesn't happen i for one don't understand what's the big takeaway from this but um you can say that um they've tried to highlight that the military has been uh, very active uh, during peak covid and there are many reasons for that and uh, those uh, could not just be for trying to build up and uh, deterrence against uh, external actors but it could also be for the fact that maybe the iranian military has been itself trying to use its resources to um, combat covid um, by through indigenous means we've seen reports i've seen reports mainstream media reports about uh, various organs of the iranian military and defense establishments um, declaring that they've made some indigenous solutions to uh, aid in the production of ventilators or ppes or these other things so obviously um, you can't just say that they were working on uh, new uranium enrichment or that would obviously that would continue you can't stop that altogether they have to maintain that presence but uh, we cannot view it from a specific uh, offensive angle only this is what i'm trying to say so interesting i found this to be very interesting this bubble street thing is very uh, this is a new approach i find it very interesting at least for me and uh, as far as the general region is concerned uh, we all know that iran has been engaged in cyber aggression since long whether it is uh, certain facilities in the, against the certain facilities in the gulf or in the region cyber espionage etc there is nothing new to offer but yes uh, covid has given more reasons for iran because it was expecting some sort of relaxation on international sanctions during this period that it will try to boost and make sure that whatever it's building up in uh, in its um, arsenal it will be enough to uh, give a, a, a befitting deterrent and eye to eye engagement with whichever um, hostile actor they perceive is trying to meddle in their internal affairs and uh, they uh, this is something they want to show the world that they're doing fine and they're ever ready so this is natural this is part of preparedness i don't find something unusual in it but as this was something which was uh, different i thought of incorporating it into this podcast thank you very much for tuning in if you have any questions or any feedback please uh, do mail me at park geostrategic review at protonmail.com um, this is zaki khalid signing off until next time assalamu alaikum